Hello, my name is Rachel Barber, co-PI on the project and a junior at Stanford University. This is Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. Infodemic was a virtual conference that took place on August 26, 2021, in which leaders in public health, medicine, ethics, and social media discussed ways to mitigate the COVID-19 misinformation and disinformation epidemic. This single season podcast will feature all of the infodemic sessions as single episodes. The following is one of the conference presentations entitled The Role of Social Media Companies. The panelists were Dr. Ann Merritt from Google Search, Aaron Berman at Facebook, and Brian Clark at Twitter. The panel moderator is Renee DeResta. Enjoy. All right, we are live. Hi, everybody. It is great to be here today. I am thrilled to be moderating this panel. I'm Renee Duresta. I'm the research manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. And I'm going to start by briefly introducing our panelists, and then we will dive right into a conversation. So we have uh, Anne Merritt. Dr. Merritt is a product manager at Google Search, where she focuses on health and information quality. And then we have Brian Clark. Brian is a senior manager in trust and safety at Twitter. And then we have Aaron Berman, who's a product policy manager for misinformation at Facebook. So we have three platforms represented today, and I'm really looking forward to just diving right in and talking about their work to moderate and mitigate some of the false and misleading narratives that we've seen spreading around COVID, particularly given, I think, some really unique challenges that have come up earlier in this conference, but also a little bit more broadly about the challenge of handling moderation uh, around misinformation at a time when we're still trying to learn all the facts. So a lot of really interesting questions to ask and discussions to have here on uh, ideas like borderline content and how to think about fact-checking and moderation in a time of incomplete consensus where we're still trying to sort out the facts. So I wanted to just start right in for those in the audience who I think maybe are not immersed in the uh, nuances of platform moderation day in, day out. There's two policies I just wanted to kind of quickly call attention to and have the uh, relevant platform representative explain them. And that is your money or your life, which I think is a really interesting framework to kind of couch this conversation. So we'll have Dr. Merritt from Google handle that one and then remove, reduce and form, which I think is actually kind of a foundational way of describing the options that platforms have when they're trying to think about whether to take down or throttle or put up interstitials over content to help users make sense of what's going on in the world, what, what the kind of most accurate information is. So maybe we can actually start with remove, reduce, and form because it just gets at that moderation framework. And we can ask our, our friend from Facebook to start in with that one. Sure. Thanks, Renee. And thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to be part of this conversation and this um, important topic. So remove, reduce, and form in general, like at Facebook, that's a framework we think about for general content moderation, where we could remove content completely from the platform, reduce its distribution in some way such that people are less likely to see it in their feeds, or inform users in some way, such as by adding labels or warning screens or the like. I can explain briefly how we apply that philosophy to uh, COVID-19 misinformation in particular, and I'm actually going to describe it backwards. I'll start with inform first. Our three-pronged strategy here for COVID misinformation is first promoting vaccines and authoritative information. That's the informed pillar. Also removing harmful misinformation and then addressing borderline content that could lead to vaccine hesitancy, which falls under the reduce idea. On the first part, promoting vaccines and authoritative information, Facebook is obviously we have quite a large user base. So we've been able to direct more than 2 billion people worldwide to expert health resources through our coronavirus information center. 
And just for some other examples, more specifically, how we're informing people and getting authoritative information to people. We help people find vaccine appointments in their areas through messages and newsfeed. We help people get questions answered, not only through the COVID Information Center, but also through ad impressions that we support partners on, such as facts about COVID ad campaigns. We enable social norming through profile frames. So in the United States, and I'm sure many people here have used this, more than 50% of Facebook users have seen someone that they follow use a profile frame and feed. And then in addition on informing, we're partnering with other organizations to reach low vaccination rate communities, such as with campaigns featuring Black doctors, nurses, or Spanish language campaigns. And we are using um, data that we're collecting in partnerships with academic institutions to judge the impact of this uh, over time. Also note on the informed side, when it comes to users who have interacted with false or misleading claims, we also inform them in those uh, situations. So just for some examples, we add labels on posts about COVID-19 and vaccines to show additional information from the WHO. And when we do remove misinformation from the platform, which I'll talk about in a second, we built a tool so that we notify users who saw that misinformation before we removed it so that they have access to the authoritative information that corrects it. So that's a large bucket of part of our inform work here. On remove for COVID-19, we do have a policy to remove harmful misinformation related to this topic. Specifically, we remove content that has been debunked as false and leading to physical harm by public health experts related to the pandemic. So these are things like fake preventative measures, claims the virus doesn't exist, or this also includes a variety of claims about vaccines. Uh, the idea here is to remove misinformation that could lead to imminent physical harm by somebody maybe not receiving appropriate treatment or exposing themselves to the disease. So on vaccines specifically, in December last year, we started removing false claims about the vaccine, again, that fall within this category. And we've expanded the list of claims we remove about vaccines in general earlier this year in consultation with health experts. And we're continuing to make uh, updates to these policies as trends emerge, including just this week, in fact. And we also remove pages, groups, and Instagram accounts that repeatedly violate these policies to get at those entities that might repeatedly spread this content. And then finally, the third part of the strategy addressing borderline content which could lead to vaccine hesitancy, which falls into the reduce area. So we do reduce the distribution of certain content about vaccines that doesn't otherwise violate our policies. And our approach here is really grounded in guidance that we've gotten from health experts that uh, who've emphasized the idea that overcoming vaccine hesitancy really depends on people being able to ask legitimate questions about safety and efficacy and get those questions answered by trusted sources. But at the same time, we also realize that certain of this content could lead to hesitancy. So we, we reduce its distribution. And similarly, for content that, again, does not violate our policies, we also work with a global network of more than 80 fact-checking organizations around the world in more than 60 languages. And for with these partners, when they find posts, including about COVID or vaccines, that they rate as false, we reduce their distribution. We also, this is part of our informed strategy, we add warning labels, and we make it less likely that people will see them in feed. And so that's the holistic strategy that we have of providing authoritative information or informed removing harmful misinformation and addressing this borderline content, which adds up to our whole strategy that yeah, ideally gets it uh, better outcomes overall. Thank you. I want to um, I want to come back to a couple of things you said in there, but I'd love to have Anne perhaps introduce the idea of your money for your life. And then maybe Brian, for just kind of round it out after that, perhaps we could just have you give Twitter's general rubric of how, you're, how you guys are thinking about this. 
That sounds great, Renee. Thanks. Uh, very excited to be here. So delivering a high quality search experience is core to what makes Google search so helpful. From the early days, understanding the quality of web content has been incredibly important to us. We have three key pillars when it comes to our approach to information quality and search. And the first one will touch on what Renee mentioned, YMYL. So first, we fundamentally design our ranking systems to identify information that people find useful and reliable. We recognize, however, that there are certain topics where quality is particularly important. And we call those topics at Google YMYL, or your money or your life. And these topics include a variety of subcategories that essentially encompass any web page that includes content that can affect someone's health, happiness, safety, or financial stability. So it includes things like shopping or financial transactions or information, legal matters, information about national government processes or policies, and most importantly for this conference and, and in the context of COVID, for health and crisis type situations. So when it comes to our ranking algorithms and when it, when it comes to our approach to these topics, we place an even greater emphasis on factors related to expertise and trustworthiness. We've learned that sites that demonstrate authoritativeness on these topics are much less likely to publish false or misleading information. So we try to build our systems to identify signals of those characteristics so that we can continue to provide the most reliable information. Second, to complement the efforts in our ranking systems, we've developed a number of search features that help you make sense of all the information you're seeing online, but also provide direct access to information from health authorities in the case of COVID. We worked very closely with the World Health Organization and globally with national public health authorities to surface their content front and center on the search page in a more organized fashion. And then lastly, we do have specific medical policies for what can appear in some search features to make sure that what we're showing is high quality, medically accurate, and helpful. So for these features, we, again, we first and foremost design our automated ranking systems to show helpful content, but our systems aren't always perfect. And if they do fail, our enforcement team does take actions in accordance with those policies. And so for these specific Google features like knowledge panels, featured snippets, which often show up in a more prominent position on the search page, we don't allow content that contradicts or runs contrary to scientific or medical consensus and evidence-based practices. So with these three approaches, we're able to continue to improve search and really try to raise the bar on quality to deliver a trusted experience for people around the world. Since the COVID-19 outbreak, teams across Google have worked to provide quality information to help keep people safe and to provide public health scientists and medical professionals with the tools to combat the pandemic. So we've launched more than 200 new products, features and initiatives, and we've pledged over a billion to assist our users, customers and our partners around the world. In search in particular, going back to that features aspect, we've introduced a comprehensive experience for COVID-19 that provides easy access to information from health authorities alongside new data and visualizations. And we're continuing to iterate and, 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 and build on that experience over time so that people can easily navigate to the resources that they need. For vaccines, we've also updated a feature which surfaces a list of authorized vaccines, vaccine statistics, and more in users' locations in response to searches for specific information about COVID-19 vaccines. And then lastly, when it comes to misinformation on search, we continue to elevate the work of fact checkers in Google search, as well as Google News and Images. Uh, we signal fact check articles in our results via dedicated tags and, and rich snippets that make it easy for users to understand. So that's just a bit of an overview. Thanks again, Renee. All right. I'll talk a little bit about our uh, approach 
to COVID-19 misinfo at Twitter. So like first and foremost, we want to protect the integrity of the public conversation and ensure that Twitter is a place where folks can be exposed to different perspectives and engage in healthy discourse. I think our policy remediation options give us the flexibility to address a wide range of misinformation and, and the associated harms. And with a critical mass of, you know, expert organizations, government officials and accounts, health professionals. Our goal at Twitter is to amplify authoritative health information as much as possible. So we have a wide range of enforcement options that give us that flexibility to be proportionate in our approach to combating uh, COVID-19 misinfo. So the first thing is we remove content with the highest propensity of harm and content that may invoke deliberate conspiracy theories related to COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccines. We also will label misleading content and provide a credible and authoritative information through curated moments. Some of the topics we cover with our curated moments would be vaccine safety, vaccine science, preventative measures, and unauthorized and unapproved treatments. With the labels, we also may prevent the tweet from being recommended and prevent users from engaging with the tweet by disabling replies, tweets, and likes. And I think that allows us to mitigate the spread while also uh, providing those who are exposed with authoritative information through our labels. And in addition, we also provide uh, warning interstitials for content that may contain misleading information off-platform. And uh, lastly, we implemented a strike policy to address uh, users who are repeat offenders of the COVID-19 misinformation policy. Each strike accompanies escalated enforcement action uh, with the final strike leading to permanent suspension. So another way of really just giving us the, the flexibility to, to address potential harms on the platform. I'd love to focus in on this idea of harm. And this is a question that any or all of you can answer. How do you determine what is a harm? How, how are you defining that in the context of COVID? Uh, particularly over, you know, over what timeline are you thinking about that? I can weigh in from Facebook. So for our, as I mentioned, for our remove policies, by remove policies, when we remove content from the platform, we're basing this on a policy that we have to remove misinformation that leads to imminent physical harm. And so that's the standard we're looking at. And that's when we're doing these consultations with uh, health experts with the WHO, we're getting their feedback. You know, is the content debunked? Is it false? And what is the harm that is likely to come from? And that's the standard we use for removing misinformation. And on this subject, particularly, you know, we've seen so many different wild false cures or, you know, they're, they're originally, I remember when hydroxychloroquine became a thing and I followed that at, in our work at Stanford, we looked at where that narrative originated, where these ideas about hydroxychloroquine come from. And it actually came from sort of Southeast Asia and then parts of Africa that had some familiarity with the drug and thought perhaps this was going to be a useful thing for combating COVID. And it didn't really make it into the American social media conversation until actually March when the president started really talking about it, President Trump at the time. And one of the things that was sort of remarkable about that was the way in which this, this piece of information, this theory kind of made its way around the world, you know, and over time, even as they were finding that this was not going to be an effective treatment, unfortunately, that was not going that 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 initial hope was not borne out. It was becoming a focus of hope in one country, even as sort of places where it had originated were beginning to move away from it for various reasons as the scientific consensus began to show that it was ineffective. And then we saw that happen again with, I mean, most recently ivermectin, but I feel like there've been three or four different ones of these. And I'm curious how you all think about moderation in that environment, particularly as you have this incomplete consensus and these narratives are global and, you know, what is kind of seen as prevailing opinion from one group of scientists in one place maybe is not necessarily quite yet solidified at a global level. Yeah, I'll jump in here. I think one of the ways we like to approach it, I think, from Twitter standpoint, is you know, really leaning on our, our curation team who, who's able to be able to monitor the conversation on the platform in real time and, and really be able to track where the discussion is going. 
And so that we have a, a good sense of like the different types of issues around it and, and where that's traveling so that we have a better sense from a policy perspective, like where to start shifting our resources and where to start really understanding the, the, the patterns associated with it. So I think we have a huge benefit on our team that, that we have like such a, a powerful team across the globe who can really be able to capture that context in real time as it unfolds. I can jump in as well on this one, Renee. I think it's been really interesting, and especially looking at this both from Google Search's perspective, but also as a clinician, we've seen the evidence and the guidance change so much over the last 18 months. And not only that, but what we've realized is that when you look at this globally, not only do national public health authorities differ in their guidance from one another, from the World Health Organization over time, but also even at the, at the more local levels, often the guidance is different. From the search side, we do have this, this medical topics policy that says when something goes against consensus, well, then we take action. But what about all of this other area where, you know, COVID kind of threw us for a loop because everything, information is changing. We don't have all the information. And even the national public health authorities are often trying to create new guidance based on of the moment and of literally of the minute research. So at least for us, I think it's really been about deepening our partnerships with these authorities and working in country to really try to understand what, what those different perspectives are. But it certainly presented really an unprecedented challenge when it comes to medical information, because it really does force us to ask that question, what is medical misinformation? Or when it's evolving so rapidly, you know, when do we actually call something far enough at the end of a spectrum that we're comfortable saying this fits into that category? So it, it's been challenging. So the point about partnerships, I think we've established a partnership with AP and Reuters exactly for this type of reason, because we'll be able to scale that monitoring of the conversation. And I think it will provide the context on different surfaces, you know, whether it's trends, explore page and prompts and our misinformation label. So I think that that's been a core part of our ability to scale this as well. One of the things I'd like to raise while we have representatives from three platforms all in one place is this idea of misinformation as networked, right? Particularly as a video, for example, that someone makes and posts to YouTube uh, or Facebook. Let's use the example of pandemic to kind of anchor it in a, in a real example here. Highly misleading piece of content took fact checkers about two days to go through the full half hour of material. In that time, eight to 12 million views on YouTube, you know, viral on Facebook. Again, very, very quickly, we did some work looking at that, the way it traversed different groups, its hops to Twitter, the attempts to take it down kind of after the fact, as it was found to be misinformation, precipitating a whole second wave of it being reposted to kind of alt platforms. How do we think about that idea of the way in which this blankets the ecosystem? And do you all at your respective companies think about those hops to other platforms? And you know, what is, what is that, if any, impact does that have on how you choose to moderate? The question of hops to other platforms is an interesting one, given that obviously our platforms are different. We, we're all independent companies and each are unique in, in some ways. So we have sometimes differing or slightly different policies that meet those unique challenges. I will say on the question of content that can be spread virally, this is, I mean, this is why we have the policies in place that we do. So where we can remove content if we find it and we have AI systems that once we detect something that we can remove can help us scale that, the impact of that. Similarly, we have AI systems that can help us predict content that we might later determine uh, needs to be removed or predict content that we can send to our fact-checking partners around the world who then could rate content and reduce the distribution of it. It's always going to be the case that no systems are perfect and there will be their, their misses, but we're continually updating these over time. And I think the point that Anne mentioned earlier before is a really important one that 
in the context of a pandemic, it's really unprecedented in terms of like the amount that guidance and information is changing so quickly. And so we're, we're updating our systems and our, and our policies over time to account for that. But because of that, we also look at the end at outcomes and at least at Facebook, what we are, what we're looking at here. I think, I don't know if I mentioned earlier that we are running what we think is actually the largest global health survey ever uh, in partnership with some academic institutions. And we've seen vaccine acceptance actually encouraging trends on that, at least in the U.S. and a few other countries. So regardless of the specific content issues that can come up, we are, we're focused on that overall outcome metric um, and our systems layering up to improved outcomes over time. I think it's a really significant challenge that you all are facing. You know, the pandemic has really shown the kind of front lines of the moderation question, particularly for the reasons we've discussed with new emerging consensus, the global nature of it, the attention, the amount of attention that people are are paying to it. What what learnings from the COVID specific environment do you feel are are more broadly applicable as you as you move forward? But what kind of key learnings have you found? You know, when we're you're dealing with sort of a an issue that is a crisis that is global in nature, it's really important to make sure that you're understanding the different contexts in which these things play out. You were talking about, you know, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, like the way in which that manifests in each place is very different. And being able to capture that and be able to really pinpoint those differences, I think is the key to being able to do this at scale. One of the things that uh, I've learned and I take from this particular crisis is the importance of having those diverse teams and thinking about it in a, in a diverse way so that you are creating solutions that are tailor-made to each of the, the challenges that you may face across different contexts. From the surge side, and, and I would imagine that, that Brian and Aaron, you've seen this as well, I, I do feel like COVID was actually a great stress test for our existing systems <laughs> in many ways. And, and it's pushed us and challenged us to grow and really emphasize the importance of flexibility and adaptability You know, as we continue to navigate the pandemic and, and this space and, and continue to try to understand vaccine access and vaccine misinformation and how this is playing out across the globe. And I do think from the search standpoint, I can say, I, you know, I do think that every day we have 15% of our searches are brand new searches that have never been done before. And so when you think about that and put that in the context of the pandemic, we really want to make sure that our automated systems are robust so that we can get people to the most relevant and reliable information. You know, and, and when it comes to some of these topics that, you know, like pandemic as an example, they kind of quickly gain attention and, and often will take a day or two for fact checkers to kind of chime in and get content on. You know, that's where developing the most robust systems kind of out of the gate is really the best and most scalable approach. And, and obviously it's not perfect, but the better we can do there, I think that the greater scale and impact we'll be able to drive. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I know we're going to open it up to Q&A now, and I think people can just type questions in the chat. Okay, Omnia, where do you draw the line on harmful content? So this is something that I think we touched on around harm with, with one of Renee's earlier questions. It's not a simple answer. I think it's quite complicated because I think there are different types of harms. I think earlier, Aaron mentioned the, the idea of imminent harm. And I, and I think when we think about imminent harm, we also take the approach of removal. But there are also informational harms. There, there are things that are misleading that could lead to a bad outcome. So I think our approach with, with labeling is, is to mitigate that harm through information, through authoritative, incredible uh, sourcing, so that we could address some of the, the potential for taking action on misinformation or, or bad uh, content. At Google, I would say, you know, misinformation versus harm, I think there's overlap there, but those are not always, you know, entirely happening together. So when it comes to our policies, you'll see that a lot of them cover harm, but also cover other 
types of dangerous or misinformation outside of the harm vector. And so YouTube has uh, published their COVID-19 medical misinformation policy about a year back. And there you can actually see a list of claims very specifically related to COVID that they take action on. Google Ads has a policy that hinges quite heavily on harm. And so there, if you look into that policy, you can actually see how they define it. So there are different ways to approach this, but I think ultimately it's kind of a multi-pronged approach where harm is one vector, but there are other vectors that we need to cover as well. Facebook as well. We've published under our help center and we can find the link if needed. A full list of claims and policies that we have related to misinformation about COVID-19 that we remove for that imminent physical harm impact. And we've also listed our policies when I talked about content that we reduce because it could lead to vaccine hesitancy. We've listed our policies there as well. We've, we've listed these outs online for those who are interested in learning more. Great, Smilana, thank you. So given that social platforms deal with massive amounts of data, how effective is AI with sifting the vast majority of what constitutes misinformation? I think from my perspective, and it's never just AI by itself, it's never just machine learning by itself, it's confluence, right? It's, it's a relationship and it's finding that right balance. There are certain contexts where human review is absolutely necessary and, and it'll be able to capture that nuance. But there are things where whether it's detection or like things with you know common patterns where AI and, and machine learning is incredible. And I think that human in the loop process is absolutely critical to being able to scale this. Always think about it uh, not as just one tool, one instrument, but it, it's one tool in, in a larger toolbox. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. And I'll say like, Specific places where we've seen AI being particularly useful, as Brian said, like tuning our systems to try to predict content that we might later qualify for removal or for fact checking, and also to scale the impact when we do find content and finding duplicates or very near exact duplicates of that content across platforms. We use our systems for that and that can be very effective. Yeah. And at Search, I'd say it's similar. It's a combination of AI with human raters. And so we work with search quality raters who measure the quality of search results on an ongoing basis for search. They are evaluating the results based on expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness, that EAT or EAT, that we really index heavily on for these YMYL topics. So these ratings don't directly impact ranking, but they help us to benchmark the quality of our results on a continuous basis to ensure that they're meeting a high bar. So it's kind of always, always a combination of the algorithms, you know, plus these ratings that help inform us as to how we're doing. How do you respond to the censorship narrative? I can jump in. I mean, so at least at Facebook, our approach, and I would say our general approach in content moderation, we're always trying to balance the core value that Facebook is to enable people to express themselves freely with protecting the safety of our community and our user community. And our approach to COVID-19, you know, is part and parcel of that balance. So when we remove misinformation, as I've said before, it's that standard of health experts have told us that it is false and leading to imminent physical harm and it's a safety risk. And that's also why we have these other approaches to balance the risks in when we don't have that clear assessment from these outside experts, right? Where we can reduce the distribution of content that experts have told us lead to vaccine hesitancy, could lead to vaccine hesitancy, but is important for people to engage with, where we can work with our fact-checking partners to find content to reduce its distribution and add labels, but not remove it. So it it's a broader question for social media and uh, online communications platforms in general, that question about the right balance of all of these policies, but we're aiming to really balance that free expression and safety issues with the policies that we have. Yeah, I think it's important for us to allow discourse and debate, but we also want to create a safe environment for that to take place. We have different levers to pull. We have different approaches that you know will allow 
content to be left up with context or authoritative information. But ultimately, I think it's upon, you know, social media companies to be transparent as much as possible on their help center pages. We do that at Twitter to make sure that folks know exactly what we're looking to mitigate, the harms that we're looking to mitigate and what we're looking to address, especially in the COVID-19 space. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, and on search, I think things are perhaps a little bit different as a search engine, you know, given that we're indexing the web and, and we're surfacing the content that's available. You know, our, our general approach is especially for health and other important topics like this, we need to really lean in on and show the high quality and authoritative results, both in features and also, you know, more prominently on the search page. That's really, I think, how we best address that. Diversity is also important to us. And we want to make sure that we're showing users not only high quality results, but also a diverse set of results so that they can get the information that they need from different types of sources. So that's a bit from the search side. Uh, okay. Can any of you discuss the disinformation dozen as a case study of how your platform has or should respond to individuals responsible for significant disinformation? So I, this is referring to a report that a certain 12 specific individuals are allegedly responsible for a large amount of misinformation about COVID-19. I'll say that we've, we've looked into this and I'm not sure that there is consensus that this is actually the case. Our look at this found that of these 12 people, they were actually responsible for just 0.05% of all views of vaccine-related content on Facebook. So this includes vaccine-related posts they've shared, what's true or false, links associated with those people as well. Just to put that in context, all that said, we are we have taken action against these people, and we've removed over 3,000 pages, groups, and Facebook or Instagram accounts linked to these people. We've placed restrictions on other accounts related to them as well. And this is part of our strategy of ensuring that if people are posting uh, misinformation that violates our policies, we remove it and we remove those pages or accounts or groups that repeatedly post that content. Yeah, so I think we've taken account level enforcement action on a number of the accounts identified and we reviewed them in accordance with our Twitter rules. So, you know, if they violated our removal statute or our label statute, we enforce uh, based on that. Several of the tweets referenced predate our updated COVID-19 enforcement policy. And because we don't apply rules of violations retroactively, we did not take enforcement action on the content posted prior to the expansion. But this is something that we're still, you know, keeping an eye on and it's still important to us. So, you know, if we do come across content that does violate our policy, we will, we will enforce in accordance with our policies. Great. Thanks. Yeah. And, and on the search side, I think I'm not sure specifically how, how search performed for this case study or example. I would say that, you know, again, first we lean heavily on, on our ranking algorithms, but knowing that there are gaps there, our policies across Google search, Google news, YouTube, as well as our advertising products clearly outline types of behaviors that are prohibited. So, you know, misrepresentation of ownership or primary purpose on, on Google news of impersonation or other things like that. We do have explicit policies that we act on in those, in those instances. Hi, everyone. Um, I just wanted to let you know that there's about five minutes left in the session. So now I'll just open it up to final remarks. Okay, I can jump in here. I think one of the things I've learned from this tackling COVID-19 misinformation at Twitter is I, I think the, the importance of trying to be innovative in the face of a crisis. And I think right now at Twitter, we have several different pilot programs. You talk about Birdwatch, when it, being able to leverage the community to help with content moderation. When it comes to the way the design of our labels look, a redesigned label pilot, I think it shows like the sort of holistic, multi-pronged approach that you have to take in these crises to try new things, 
to try to tackle a very, very complex issue. So I think, you know, one of the things that I'm really excited about Twitter is that we're listening to users and, and listening to researchers and, and, and establishing those relationships and, and meeting users where, where they're at so we can help mitigate some of the harm and help provide credible information. And, uh, you know, I think one, one great example is our, our pilot user reporting flow. This is something that users have asked for for a while. So I think we're piloting it in, in the U.S., South Korea, and Australia. And we'll, we'll be able to see, you know, what, what users have flagged as misinformation and give us an opportunity to zero in and, and take advantage of the user feedback. So, you know, for social media companies like us, we, we have to make sure that we're being innovative in the face of a crisis, especially a very complex crisis. Yeah, I, I can just end by saying, I think one, one point that several of us raised throughout is flexibility and the changing situation on the ground and needing to stay up with that. I think that's a really important issue and one where we have seen the need and, and I think responded to be flexible over time to change our policies as the facts change and update our systems. Like one example is just the word Delta as related to coronavirus. It was not something that people probably would have thought about eight months ago and now is obviously a big topic of discussion. So that, that is one of my takeaways and we'll, um, we're going to continue to our, to apply our policies in the three pronged approach that I've laid out, but make adjustments over time as we need to. I think on the Google side, I think one of the things that this pandemic really showed us was just how important all of these platforms are in a crisis like this and trying to get information out. We know that. Lots of our users search for health information all the time, but watching, and you can see on Google Trends, the, the escalation of COVID and vaccine queries over the last year, you can see that in, in these, you know, in this environment, people are really trying to get the most accurate, the most up-to-date information that they can to make decisions. And so we really have an important role, you know, as we look at this clinically, as we look at this from a public health perspective, we really have an important role in this pandemic and in this crisis. And I think it's actually been, been a really good thing and a great thing to see a lot of teams across our, our organization come together and work together on this. One thing I'll just highlight, I had seen some of the comments in the in the conference chat that you may want to look at is there was recently a paper that was published by the National Academy of Medicine. It, it was an expert panel that convened and, and basically published some guiding principles on identifying credible online health sources. And the paper is called Identifying Credible Sources of Health Information in Social Media Principles and Attributes. It was recently published about a month ago. It's, it's on the website at Google and YouTube. And you may want to check it out just to kind of see where we're at in terms of thinking about, you know, what all of this means as we look ahead for the next crisis. Thanks for listening to this session of Infonomic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. We invite you to listen to the other important discussions and presentations that occurred at the conference, each available as individual episodes of this podcast. All 10 sessions are archived together. Just search Infodemic on the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, aliem.com, or through summer 2022 on our website, stanfordinfodemic.org. A video recording of the entire conference is available on the Stanford Department of Emergency Medicine YouTube channel. Thank you again for joining us.